Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 40 of Her Story. Today, my guest is Camille Cintron Devlin. Camille is the PR and communications professional and consulting publicist for Buckle Suite. In this episode, Camille and I discuss arts management, community outreach, finding your own path, and supporting organizations that are committed to innovation, inclusivity, and social good. So please make sure you like and share this episode with your friends. And please also make sure you're checking out our website. I am currently updating more resources on our resources page, and there is a new blog coming out soon on our website, so be sure to check that out. The link to our website is in our bio on Instagram, on Twitter. It's also linked on Facebook and in our SoundCloud account that hosts all of our episodes. If you haven't checked it out our website yet, please make sure you do so, and I will see you next Monday. Hi, my name is Camille Cintron Devlin, and I am a PR and communications consultant who works with musicians and arts organizations. I am originally from Ponce, Puerto Rico, and I currently live in Wheeling, West Virginia. Awesome! <laughs> that's such a that's such a stark change from Puerto Rico to West Virginia. That's what everybody says. And if you only knew that I've been living here a year and a half and we, my husband and I moved here from Hawaii. <laughs> oh, that's an even bigger culture shock. I feel like Hawaii. To I West think Virginia. So. Yeah, I that's crazy. Oh my gosh. So much to get into. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll circle back to, to what that change of setting must've been like for you. Um, I wanted to start off by just asking what got you started in music in the first place? Sure, that's a great question. So I grew up in the city of Ponce, which is the second largest city in the island of Puerto Rico in the Caribbean. Um, I was lucky enough to grow up in a town that has a pretty fantastic after-school program that's funded through the municipal government. And so when I was in, I believe, third grade, one of my classmates was already in the program and they told my mom about it. And my mom was like, great, I need something to keep her occupied after school. Well, because my mom was a teacher and she had multiple jobs at the time. So anyway, I auditioned to get into the program. And if you get accepted into it, it's, it's pretty amazing. I think my mom only paid like $10 a year for registration. Wow. And I got to study whatever I wanted in classical music. So I took oboe lessons. I took guitar lessons. So I played a little bit of classical guitar believe it or not uh, you can do ensembles so I was an orchestra and band and choir um, they also have theory and solfege courses so I took those all you know from elementary school all the way through high school so it's, it's pretty involved and I like to describe it as like a uh, like a conservatory style training program because it is uh, pretty intense and you know I was there every day after school from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. and then on Saturdays from 9 to 1. So it became a really big part of my life. Wow, that sounds intense. It really was, that's, but I loved that's it. That's so <laughs> awesome that you had a program like that 
where your mom only had to pay $10. That's amazing. It was. And I actually, you get to borrow instruments for them too, because obviously my mom had no idea what an oboe was. So um, <laughs> all you had to do at the time was literally sign an agreement with them that if anything happened to the instrument, like, you know, obviously your parents would be responsible, but you didn't, you didn't have to pay for that. Wow. That's amazing. That's so cool. So that was kind of like your early music experience, like growing up in school. So it wasn't necessarily like your traditional sort of program that you think of in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I, I never actually got to do an after school program in the U.S. So I, I don't have a real way to compare it. But mm-hmm. I do think that it was uh, it was more um, I don't want to say serious, but I, I do think that the, the purpose of the program that I was in was actually to kind of convert you into a real musician and hopefully have that be a career path for you. So did you take um, music classes during the school day as well, or was it just the after school <laughs> program? I mean, I call it an after school because it was literally after school. Um, hmm. My hometown didn't have an integrated um, school where you could do academics and music or arts. Um, gotcha. that actually does exist in San Juan, but I, I was, I didn't grow up there and it was like an hour and a half drive. So that was never going to happen for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, but that's, that's really cool that you were able to have that experience and also just playing oboe and guitar and all those things and being able to explore that is really awesome. Um, it sounds like you had a pretty eclectic music experience there. So what made you come to the U.S.? Well, so after my schooling, like high school, I was I was pretty set on becoming a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, it just that experience became a really big part of my life. And all of my best friends are from my after school music program and so I just fell in love with the art form and I really wanted to see how far I could go. I did undergraduate in Puerto Rico at the conservatory there. Um, so I was there for five years completing that degree and I knew that I wanted to continue, um, but there was not an option for me to study music performance on the island. Like if I wanted to get a master's degree, it had to be music education. And I knew that I wanted to do performance or at least back then I did. And so I started looking into graduate programs in the U.S. And I, I kind of hate saying it this way because it makes me sound really old. But back then, uh, you didn't have a computer. Like, like I didn't have a laptop. If I wanted to access the internet, I had to sign up for a turn at the library, at the conservatory. So with that, I'm trying to say that you didn't have the access to information and resources that everyone has at their fingertips right now. And so it was really hard for me to figure out a way to make that transition to go to school in the United States, like what kinds of programs I wanted to go to, who were the teachers, like I really had no no knowledge about that. So the way to do that um, back then was through word of mouth or like referrals, right? If you had a friend or you knew somebody from the conservatory that had made that move and they could hopefully guide you through that. Or if your teachers, you know, had that information and they could kind of counsel you on that. So my teacher um, at the time was not super connected. So that wasn't really helpful. Um, But I did have some friends that were a year or two older than me that had moved to the United States to pursue uh, graduate education. And so 
the only schools that I applied for were Queens College in uh, New York because I knew people would come there. The University of Akron in Ohio because, again, I had two friends who were currently enrolled there and I knew that their orchestra director was recruiting people for the program. And um, the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque because their oboe teacher had actually gone down to Puerto Rico when I was still a student. And um, I think he and his wife were there for a week, essentially recruiting for the oboe and viola studio. And they did a series of master classes and concerts. So I actually had a chance to meet him in person and play for him. Um, but other than that, I really had no idea what I was doing. Oh, that sounds like such an interesting experience. You know, like, I feel like today we're just so interconnected, right, with technology and everything that it, you know, we often take for granted how easy it is to just like, you know, find a program and find out what they're about and everything like that. Cause like schools just have such great websites now and things like that. And all their resources mm-hmm. are online. So yeah, how different that's crazy. So you got your first degree in Puerto Rico and then you moved to the U S and what school did you end up going um, for? I ended up going to the university of Akron. I actually awesome. was, was pretty lucky in that I got into all of them. So it just became a question of, being able to afford it. And um, like I said, the orchestra director in Akron was recruiting at the time. And um, I don't know how, but they did have a bunch of assistantships. And so um, I got a full assistantship to be a part of the oboe studio, which actually covered all of my tuition. Plus I got a stipend for living expenses, which is extremely helpful. Yeah. And so that, that helped me make that decision. I also did have a friend from the conservatory who got accepted into Akron as well in the violin studio. And, you know, that, that helped me make the decision as well, because then I have somebody to go with and she yeah. and I room together and we lived together for two years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I went to the Baldwin Wallace Conservatory of Music um, for my undergrad. Yeah. So I'm familiar with Akron. Um, I've been there a few times. So that's really awesome. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a great experience for sure. Yeah. So yeah, let's delve into that a little bit more. Um, what were your collegiate experiences like both in Puerto Rico and in the U.S.? Um, and were there any sort of similarities or differences between the programs? Great question. I think that they were very different. Um, I think that a lot of it had to do with who I was as a person and my maturity level at the time. When I graduated high school, I knew that I wanted to pursue a degree in music, but I didn't really know what being a musician meant. You know what I mean? Like I, I'd never had to support myself or tried to find work in the field. I just thought of this as of music as this beautiful community. And I don't know, I guess you kind of like fantasize about playing in an orchestra and stuff, but you don't actually know what it takes to um, get to that point. Yeah, I think that's most high schoolers for sure. (laughs) I know. And I was, I feel silly now, but that was the reality back then. And so um, being in the conservatory in Puerto Rico, I feel like I was still in that little bubble. Um, I did get the chance to perform with a couple of you know, pick up orchestras in Puerto Rico. I I got one audition to be a part of a small chamber orchestra in town. So I worked there for a couple of years. They also have a philharmonic orchestra that plays mostly um, Puerto Rican folk music and pop stuff. So I, I was a sub for them and I played with them pretty regularly. So I did have 
some gigs and some in, income income coming in. But you know, like my dad, my parents were still supporting me. And so I hadn't been faced with the reality of what it would be like to have a career in music. Um, so making the move to Akron, I feel like that's when the reality started started to set in for me. Um, I was, you know, aside from my friend that was my roommate, I was pretty much alone in the United States. I had no connection to my culture. I didn't really have family or friends in that area besides the people that I was going to school with. And at that point, my parents had pretty much, you know, let me go on my own and they weren't really like paying for anything. Um, So I really had to start thinking about how I was going to support myself, um, not just through the degree, but, you know, beyond that, like I, I really started doubting, you know, what I was going to do as a, as an, as, performer I just wasn't sure I'm not really I'm not even sure that I'm answering your question I'm just kind of like reliving my frustrations with the field <laughs> of classical music totally fine, totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean I, I will say in terms of the academic part of it um I did enjoy how much more rigorous um schooling felt for me in the United States and I think part of that had also to do with the language um because this was the first time that I was having to study like theory in and just music in general in English. And so that presented a little bit of a barrier for me because even though I was pretty fluent in English, like it's just the terminology and there were so many things that felt different to me. Like for example, um, a lot of my theory classes were very focused in like 20th, 20th century music and and contemporary music and I literally did not study any of that back in Puerto Rico so it was all completely new to me and I was very lost so um, I did have to have to climb some hurdles in terms of um, understanding music through a new language for me um, and you know it, it did it feel a lot more competitive in the United States because the level to an extent was higher in some areas Yeah, I can understand how that could be, you know, kind of a a barrier in that way, because I think we just automatically assume, like in the U.S. and in higher education, that, you know, everybody is speaking the same sort of musical language. Like, I think people just assume they're like, oh, music is a universal language. And (laughs) it it is and it, it isn't, right? Like, okay, cool. The idea of music is pretty universal, but there's so much that goes into music that doesn't make it universal, right? Like you were saying, like the terminology and things like that. Even I, I just interviewed a guest um, from the UK and she said when she came over to study in the US because she did kind of the similar thing with you where she did her first degree over in her home country and then she came over here for her graduate mm-hmm. work. And she said that they call different musical things by different terms between the UK and the US, which I that thought was so sense. interesting interesting too because it's like oh well it's English must you know must all be the same but it's really not um we all call things by you know in different ways and we study different things in different countries and so there is that you know kind of cultural shift um even in higher education and the content that they're teaching um so yeah so that's very interesting to have that perspective and so you're talking about you know you you had gone into school totally gung-ho and performance and being a classical musician and playing 
um, in an orchestra potentially or something like that. So what kind of turned you onto the track of PR and communications? Yeah, so um, I think it was halfway into my master's degree at Akron. I kind of, I referenced this before, but I was starting to question um, the sustainability of this path thing, classical music for me, you know, as a performer. I mean, I know it works out for a lot of other people. Um, I knew that I wanted to stay in the United States for longer, and I just didn't know of a way to do that without getting a job, right? And um, I just started thinking about, you know, what my strengths were in music and, and you know, like looking at it objectively. I hated auditions. I started developing a lot of stage fright, yeah. and I literally could not perform a recital on my own. Like, I just... I was so nervous. It impacted everything from my breathing to tension in my jaw, which then made me really tired when I was playing because I was just like clipping uh, with my armature. And it just became really, really challenging for me to overcome that. And there were a lot of other things happening. Like my oboe teacher at the time was trying to change my armature, which is, is a very intense and lengthy process. I mean, there are people that go through that process and win instruments and it takes them years yeah. to get back to being able to play um, at a certain level. And I, I just wasn't up for it. And to be honest with you, I loathe making reads. I'm sure you hear a lot of oboe players saying that, <laughs> but I re really hated it and I was terrible at it. <laughs> I still oh am. my gosh, I would be so bad at that. I am, I'm a trumpet player, but I am not crafty at all whatsoever. I, I think I would just break them. I know, that's me. And then you can't buy them from other people because that's frowned upon. So, <laughs> um, I mean, there were all these things going through my mind, right? I was just feeling like, okay, maybe this isn't exactly what I need to be doing with my life, but I do still want to be a part of the music community because like I said, it just meant a lot to me throughout my life and I I really enjoy it and I think music and the arts are extremely important like I could not picture myself growing up and being who I am today without having that uh, yeah so um I had a meeting with my orchestra director who's actually still at Akron his name is Guy Bordeaux mm -hmm. and Dr. Bordeaux totally heard my concerns and he was very much like okay let's solve this problem because he's like a total problem solver very organized person he was like, you, these are the strengths that I see in you. You're organized, you're good with people, you're a good writer. Have you ever thought about arts administration? I had no idea what he was talking about. So then he explained to me what the field was. And at the time, I feel like everybody now knows what arts management and arts administration is. And there are so many degrees and everybody has one or a form of it. Hmm. But back then it still felt pretty new and there weren't that many available. Um, so he talked to me about it. I think he, his daughter at the time was considering doing arts management in Chicago. Um, and he thought that that would be a good idea for me to explore. So he set me up on a meeting. It just so happens that the University of Akron offers an arts management degree. Mm -hmm. And he sent me up on a meeting with the head of that program. And he said, you know, I, I think you should meet with him. And, you know, I don't want to pressure you or anything, but if it were to work out, you could actually extend your assistantship with us through the School of Music by performing in our ensembles and in the graduate woodwind quintet um, and complete that degree. And so 
I was like, great, that's a great idea. So I met I met with this other person who was the head of the arts management program. Um, and it was very helpful. I mean, honestly, he kind of opened my eyes to what arts administration was and what all the the track possibilities would be even within that because obviously you can work in PR marketing, you can work in development, you can work in artistic programming, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did tell me that he thought I should um, get an internship or do some volunteering in admin before I decided to apply. Um, because, you know, he wanted me to get a, a, a kind of like on the ground, realistic sense of what it would be like to work in that environment, because it is very different from being an artist. Um, so I started reaching out to several uh, music nonprofit organizations in the Akron and Cleveland area, and I ended up getting an administrative internship with the Akron Symphony Orchestra. Awesome. Um, yeah, it was just a semester, and I did everything that you can imagine from getting coffee, uh, coffee for people and making copies to doing Boeings for the librarian, <laughs> which is kind of funny, an oboe player doing Boeings. And I, I just, I kind of loved it. It just felt like a fit for me. I never worked in an office before, but something about it, a lot of people hate it, but for me, it just feels very healthy because I am some somewhat of an introvert and I need silence and I need to focus and um, I get really drained being surrounded by people all the time. So I just felt like very healthy Um, and I like the variety Mm -hmm. in the day. So um, that kind of led me to, to decide to apply um, for arts admin programs. And to be fair, I did consider a couple of other paths. Like I thought about getting my uh, music education degree, which is what a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. But I just could not picture myself teaching in a classroom setting. Um, I do like one-on-one lessons, but um, I just didn't want to do the classroom thing. And yeah. I also considered going to law school, uh, which my mom loved that idea, but uh, it did not. <laughs> I decided not to go that route. Every mom loves that idea. I know, right? Lawyer or doctor. But I just want to commend you and say good for you for um, for choosing to not do the music ed route um because I feel (laughs) like like this is going to be me just like being controversial now and so some people definitely agree with me and some people might not agree with me but I cannot tell you how many people go to school for undergrad in performance and then can't get a job and then they just go oh I'll just be music ed Yep. even though they're not really a person that should be in a classroom, like that's not their jam, you know, they, they teach privately and they do a really good job with that. But then they're like, eh, I'm just going to do it. Cause it's like my fallback. It's fine. And then we have a bunch of people in music ed that this was their fallback. Right. And, and then they're I... not successful and they're so unhappy. And then I'm sitting there like, Hey, this wasn't your thing. Like, don't do it. Find something that's your thing. You know? Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. I, I, I'm kind of a be- uh, believer in vocations and I, I just don't think it's for everybody. And, yeah. and I, I've had teachers, now I'm getting controversial, but I've had teachers who did not want to be a teacher. And mm-hmm. it definitely has an impact on you as a student. And, and that was, you know, one of the things that soured me um, toward becoming a professional oval player is that I, I had at one point a teacher who, who just had no interest in teaching and yeah. um, their career was more important to them than helping you be a better musician and a better player. And exactly. um, 
yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that. And also I feel like there's this, there's this weird hierarchy in music. And I don't know if you feel this way or not, depending on what area you are in and it's mm-hmm. like oh top tier the performance people end up getting orchestra orchestral jobs right and then mm-hmm. everybody else kind of falls underneath at the bottom which it shouldn't be the case right everybody should be on the equal playing field but there's this weird like elitist mentality especially um with students that are going into their undergrad like you have to be a performance major in order to be good at your instrument or things like that there, there's this like weird attitude and it's just so funny to me because you know most people don't end up doing that like the vast majority of musicians are not playing in orchestras right they're doing many other things whether they're in arts administration or music education or they compose or they conduct or like there's so many other avenues and it's just so funny because i feel like a lot of people when they walk into college they're thinking ed or performance And I feel like that's like Mm -hmm. where most kind of musicians start off and then they kind of just branch out into their own thing eventually. But I just feel like there's just not enough um, awareness for kids at a young age that, hey, there are all of these music careers out there, you know? Like I know when I was in high school, I wasn't aware of an arts administration, not until I got into my undergrad. And then I was like, oh, that's a thing. Oh, that's pretty cool. You know, so weird. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that... um... Yeah, I agree that there is that hierarchy. And I think that it's probably was driving some of my perseverance, let's just call it that, in becoming a performer up until I was faced with, you know, certain real life adult-like decisions. And I also think that as these schools of music and conservatories keep pumping out more and more uh, music majors, into the world there's just not enough orchestra jobs for all those people anyway so you could be extremely talented as a player and totally capable of winning auditions but there just isn't a job for you Mm -hmm. yeah and and for me my my path is kind of similar to yours in that I when I um came into my undergrad I thought I was going to be a double major in music ed and performance and that's what I was going to do and it was just going to be magical and all these things and (laughs) um I I know I'm a good musician like I know I'm a good trumpet player but like ed ended up being my my mantra my forte but I, I realized as I got through my undergrad that I was like I don't want to live the rest of my life playing auditions I don't want to be like valued based upon an audition. I don't like that feeling. That's not yeah. my, that's not my thing that fuels me. Right. And I also have really bad performance anxiety like you do. And I was like, I don't really want to constantly mm-hmm. have this feeling like every concert, every sort of thing. Like I love the concert high, right. Like after the concert, like how great yeah. you feel, but like leading up to it, leading up to my recital, I always felt like I was going to like throw up everywhere. Like I just did not <laughs> like that feeling. Right. So I was like, I, I hated it. I want to do that for the rest of my life. And then I got into student teaching and I was working with BW's community music school all the way through my undergrad. And I was working with Cleveland arts programs and teaching kids and things like that all the way through. And I never got nervous for any of that. I never got nervous about teaching. I never got nervous conducting up on a stage in front of an ensemble, which usually terrifies people, but it didn't make me nervous at all. I was like, Oh, I love this. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, yes, this is my thing. Like I don't have anxiety about it. I love it. I love working with kids. And like, I found my thing. And so sometimes we like go into school, like thinking we're going to go one way and then we end up going a completely different direction. So I think yeah. that's so 
Like we just got to figure it out. Right. And I will say like, there's something to be said for pushing yourself to an extent, right? Like Mm -hmm. it is like, not everybody that's auditioning is like, Oh yeah, this is great. I got this. Like people do get nervous. And, uh, but there is, I agree with you that there's a certain type of um, like mental staff that people who enjoy the audition process have yeah even if they get nervous and they're able to develop healthy mechanisms to cope with those nerves and I've seen it happen like I have a one of my really best friends is a fantastic oboe player um and she plays with a touring woodwind quintet and, and she's um uh won many orchestra auditions on both oboe and english horn and it's not that she doesn't get nervous but she like knows how to deal with it. And she, she knows how to prepare herself mentally and physically mm-hmm. for auditions. And you can see her get into that mode. And I just, I, ne- I was never able um, to make that switch in a healthy way. And it just, for yeah. me, it felt like it was getting worse and worse. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think everybody just has a different, a different way of approaching things. And some people are more successful at, you know, making it work than others. And, that's just when you just got to find your own thing and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Um, I agree. Yeah. So you did this internship with, uh, with Akron symphony, which is awesome. Um, I want to kind of transition a little bit into some of your more professional projects that you've done. Um, so I'm just looking at your bio and I'm going to start talking about certain things. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, First thing I want to talk about is this Gourmet Symphony, because this sounds super cool. You are the co-founder of Gourmet Symphony, which is a concept of combining classical music with fine dining um, for four years. So can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like uh, for you and how you came up with this idea? It's fantastic. Food and music is like my favorite things. I know. Isn't it everybody's? (laughs) So um, Gourmet Symphony is, or was, I should say, because it's not active currently. Um, It was a concept that my husband, John, who's an orchestra conductor, and two of our other friends, and other John named John Coco and Brianna Murray, who's now Brianna Millage. Um, the four of us got together and we launched this concept in Washington, D.C. in 2014. Um, and the idea was pretty simple. We love food and music just like you do and just like a lot of our friends did. Um, so we wanted to try to uh, put together concert experiences that would combine those two things. But um, on a larger scale, what we were really hoping to do is two things. One, um, kind of highlight all of the local artists and artisans in the DC community. At the time, DC was having like this big restaurant boom and all this like really talented people were coming to the city and opening locations and restaurants. And there were also a lot of younger, um, very talented chefs that were opening small businesses of their own. So we felt like that was, it was, a prime time for us to be able to start working and having uh, interesting collaborations with those artists. Um, and of course, DC has a lot of really great musical talent, not just because of all the uh, major orchestras like the Baltimore Symphony and the National Symphony that are in that area, but there's a bunch of other uh, also very, very high level regional orchestras like the National Philharmonic and the Alexandria Symphony, plus all the military bands in the area. And all of those musicians are constantly looking for uh, performance opportunities so it just felt like okay this is something that we can accomplish and we can give 
local musicians gigs in various ways and we can um, give the chefs opportunities to uh, get out there and get creative and um, you know get a little bit of brand recognition through that so that was one thing that we wanted to do another thing that we wanted to do on a more personal level was kind of get our friends interested in classical music there were a lot of people that we knew you know 20 somethings 30 somethings 40 somethings who um were intimidated by the concert experience and you hear that a lot like people don't like being in a concert hall they don't like having to be seated for two hours they think it's yeah. boring they don't understand this massive sound that has been thrown at them. They feel afflicted by a lot of what happens inside of the concert hall. And we felt like all of the problems that they had have nothing to do with the music itself. It's just around the experience that's, that's kind of like the way we do music um, or the way that we do orchestral music, I should say. So um, we wanted to try and change that up a bit. Um, and food was obviously a big component of that, like being able to eat and drink during that. But there were all these other things um, that we called the tenets of Gourmet Symphony, which included, you know, you can you can socialize during the performance, you can have your phones out, which now everybody does. <laughs> but at the time it was like, remember, Wow, I can tweet while this is happening. Um, and we also had, um, we wanted the musicians to be seen as artists and ambassadors of what we were doing. So there were various points throughout the performances where the musicians would come out and sit with the audience and dine with them. And, and you know, we just wanted to make it more fun and more interactive, a little less stuffy and hopefully more attractive to people like us um, who enjoy classical music but just didn't want to go see it in a regular hall yeah that's really awesome and i i love the fact that you mentioned um reaching outside of the traditional concert hall because i feel like the way our concerts have been traditionally done in classical music it's not super equitable for every population i think it kind of creates some weird barriers um because there's just so much crazy tradition you know, behind that, that kind of excludes certain peoples or mm -hmm. makes them feel like, you know, classical music isn't for me or things like that. So I really love this idea of, you know, breaking down those barriers and really reaching out to people and food is a way to do that. So that's awesome. For sure. <laughs> and I will say like something that I, um, that was very important to us at Gourmet Symphony is how do I say this without saying, I don't want to say anything wrong, but I feel like classical music has a problem with classical music being entertainment. Yeah. Like why, why don't we want people to have a good time at concerts? Like, yeah, it can be intellectually challenging and it can be stimulating and it can be sentimental and whatever you want, but it can also be fun. Like, why not? Like, yeah, I think there is, my husband always talks about this and I love the way he describes it. Like he almost sees orchestras like, you know, full-time symphony orchestras as like museums to an extent. And he's like, you totally need to have that. You totally need to have a place where people can go and experience that art in the most pure and pristine form. And at the highest level, that's great. But there's also room for this other more experimental things um, like new music, combining stuff and, you know, cross mashups of different art forms like all of it is valid and there's room for all of it like why do we have to have a problem with somebody eating while our, an orchestra is playing like what's wrong with that and people yeah. did have a problem with that some 
Yeah, and um, I always bring up this when when people talk about about um, the tradition of being in the concert hall, and it's that you know back in the day when a lot of these pieces were being performed and they were considered new music, um, people were playing like cards and smoking and talking to each other. Yeah. <laughs> goofing off during the concert there wasn't this like rigid like we have to sit there in absolute silence and things like that so when when people try to make that argument like that's not the classical tradition and I'm like what part of classical tradition are you talking about are you talking about back in the 1800s are you talking about mm-hmm. 1950 <laughs> are you talking about 1600 like what what part are you talking about um, because there was a time when that was you know normalcy right like people yeah. were allowed to boo and cheer in the middle of a piece like people were allowed to do that that wasn't something oh that... Oh my god, can you imagine? Oh, that would be crazy Somebody now. booing right now. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, it, it wasn't always, it wasn't always the case, right? So I, I just don't, I, I can never understand that argument because I'm always like, what part of tradition are you talking about? You know? Yeah. So it's, it's funny. It's funny. You also were at, in a managerial, managerial, position um, at three of the nation's most prominent art centers. You worked at Gala Theater, Wolf Trap, and the Kennedy Center, which is super awesome. And then you also worked for George Mason University and the Hawaii Outpost of the World's Finest Jazz Clubs and Restaurants, the Blue Notes. So can you talk a little bit about um, some of the experiences you learned from working in positions like this for these awesome institutions? Yeah, sure. So I... um... After Akron, I I, th- I don't think we covered this, but I, I got a degree, another master's in arts administration at Boston University. And while I was there, I was just trying to make, get my, my degree, but also just trying to get a, as much experience in admin as I could because I, I felt like I was behind in comparison to uh, some of my peers at BU. Um, that program was designed so that a lot of the people that went to it or were part of it uh, actually had jobs already in the field. So I was actually going to school with people that already had like development jobs at the Boston Symphony. And they were just doing this because they wanted to get a master's, but they already have work. Um, So I felt like, okay, I'm behind. I need to catch up. I need to get experience while I get this degree. So I did a bunch of internships. And then once that degree, uh, was completed, I was again at this kind of like crossroads of like, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to find work? How am I going to support myself? And I was having kind of a hard time getting uh, full-time jobs in Boston. I had like three different part-time jobs, like doing various things. Like I did library work for the Boston Baroque and I was the orchestra manager for a community orchestra in a suburb of the city. Um, And it was not enough to live because I'm sure you've heard that Boston is very expensive. So, I decided to try a different city and through a friend of mine, actually through somebody that went to Akron with me, who was also now transitioning to arts administration, like parentheses, networking is so important. (laughs) She let me know that she knew of a job with a theater company in DC called Gala Hispanic Theater. And she's like, they've been looking for nine months and they're looking for a very specific type of person. And what that meant was that they were looking for somebody that was fully bilingual because um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Gala, but what they do is they specialize in presenting work by Latin American playwrights. Um, oh, cool. And so all of their plays, well, I shouldn't say all, like most of their plays are performed in Spanish with English subtitles. So they're really serving 
the Hispanic community in the DC metro area, uh, but also uh, anyone that has an interest in Latin American culture and that can speak and read Spanish. So um, all of their marketing and PR is done in both languages and they were really struggling to find somebody because a lot of people would say that they were bilingual in their materials, but when once they went into their interviews, it was obvious that they were not. And so my friend was just like, I think you should apply and, and see what's up. So I applied for the job while I was still living in Boston. They invited me over to DC for an interview. I drove uh, up on a Thursday, had my interview on a Friday, and they called me that same night to tell me that I'd gotten the job. Wow. So I was very excited, but I was somewhat terrified because this had nothing to do with music. <laughs> and I was feeling pretty insecure about my ability to do PR marketing for an art form that I knew nothing about. Um, mm -hmm. But I decided to take it. I mean, like, like, I feel like that's the story of everybody's life. You would just kind of have to roll with the punches and, and sometimes doors are open for you and you just have to take a chance and go through them and you'll figure it out on the other side. Yeah. Um, so I, I worked there and that was really my door into full-time employment. Like I'd never had a full-time job before. So, um, it was really, uh, fantastic that I got to do it with, uh, you know, peers from the Latin American community. I was working for people from Argentina and Costa Rica and Mexico and all over the Caribbean. Um, and so it was, it was great. I felt like I had a, a mini family there away from home because even though they weren't necessarily Puerto Rican, I, it just, it felt familiar. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity, obviously, to speak my language at work, which was awesome. Um, so I was there for a couple of years. And then um, after that, I went to work at Wolf Trap, which is the nation's only park for the performing arts. And it's based in Virginia, just outside of D.C. Um, and that was amazing. Um, part of what attracted me to Wolf Trap was the fact that I really wanted to um, have a job with an organization that presented some form of classical music. Like at that point, I wasn't necessarily gone ho on working for an orchestra, but I was like, I need classical music to be a part of something in what I'm doing. Otherwise, I, I'm just kind of like veering more and more away from my original intention of being a musician. And it just felt like I, I was missing something. So um, Wolf Trap um, is the summer home of the National Symphony, Symphony Orchestra. They also have a series of, of classical performances throughout the year, including a chamber music series at the Barnes. Uh, which is their indoor venue. And then in addition to that, they also have a pretty fantastic young artist program for opera singers, which is called the Wolf Drop Opera. So uh, all of that was very, very appealing to me. Mm -hmm. So I accepted a job and I was there also for a few years uh, as their public relations manager. From there, I got invited to apply for a press position at the Kennedy Center, um, which was pretty much a dream job, you know. Um, Kennedy Center obviously is internationally renowned and I was honestly dying to work there. I had applied, I think like four times before that uh, for different jobs, but this was really the right fit. Um, and it was great. I, I often call it my arts, arts PR bootcamp because it was very, very intense. It was a very demanding job and, um, took over my life 
but yeah. um, it was worth it. And I learned a lot from that experience. I feel like I'm a completely different kind of professional having gone through the Kennedy Center family. So um, I, I've had a lot of jobs, man. Then from there, I, I got invited <laughs> to apply for a job at George Mason University with their College of Visual and Performing Arts. And that was more of a um, leadership position. I was the, their assistant director of marketing communications. And um, the way it works at George Mason is that the college is kind of like the umbrella for all of their arts units. So that includes School of Art, Music, Theater, Dance, all of them. There's seven of them. Uh, mm -hmm. Plus, they have two performing arts centers, one on their main campus in Fairfax, Virginia, and another one in their science and technology campus in Manassas, Virginia. So if you work for the marketing department of the college, you are doing PR and marketing and communication for all of those academic units, plus two performing arts centers that have their own performing arts series throughout the year. So oh. it's pretty all-encompassing and is very, very busy. Um, sure. but it's really, really interesting work. And, um, I'm, I'm now, I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm more and more drawn by education and the importance of it and working with young people. So that was a really fantastic step for me to take. Um, yeah. unfortunately I had to leave that job because my husband, John, who I mentioned is the conductor, um, got a job, a conducting job with, uh, a youth orchestra program in Hawaii. So we left DC for Hawaii and I was there for a year. And I, that's when I really started uh, consulting and freelancing in earnest when we made that move. Although I did end up getting a, a job in communications with Blue Note. Um, I don't know if you know what Blue Note is. They're an awesome jazz club in, you know, the original one is in New York. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. And, I, I've been at Blue Note in New York. Yeah. I didn't know if there was a second one or if it just went by the same name. That's cool. Yeah, it's the same people. So uh, Blue Note has franchised out. So they have clubs all over the world, including in Japan and China and Brazil and Italy. Wow. But the Blue Note, the Blue Note Hawaii one is actually not a franchise. It is owned and operated by the New York people. Um, so that was awesome. I love working there. Um, and I was doing it in tandem with my consulting work. Mm -hmm. um, but again, conductors, my husband got another job. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Um, this, exactly. This time in Wheeling, West Virginia. And, you know, we, we were faced with the tough choice of, you know, staying in Hawaii or coming here. But the reality is that um, here it, it was a better setup for both of us. And here he gets to work with a professional orchestra, which was his dream. So we decided to come back to the mainland and here we are. We've been here for a year and a half now. That is so crazy. What a trip. You've I done feel a like lot. I gave you my life story in what, five minutes? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, yeah, I just wanted you to hit on everything because you've just done so much. And I think you have so many different experiences doing so many different things and working with different um, institutions and businesses and things like that. I love how you started mentioning your consulting business because that's what I was going to jump into next um, because you are a consulting publicist. So I actually wanted to ask you, how did you get started in that? Because that's kind of, you know, your own thing. And you work with an East Coast-based agency called Buckle Suite. But how did you get started in that? And what was that process like of like building up clientele and doing that sort of thing? Yeah, so I, um, 
I think I mentioned earlier that going into arts administration, one of the things that was appealing to me were all the different tracks that you could take. Um, and as I was um, entering the field as a master's student, but also somebody that was looking for part-time work opportunities and internships, it just so happens that a lot of the internships that I ended up getting were in PR and marketing. And um, I don't know if it was because people identified a certain skill set in me or just simply because that's what was available at the time. But I took those opportunities and I ran with them. And I, I um, ended up really enjoying that kind of work, like writing is something that comes more naturally to me than speaking sometimes, <laughs> especially in English, because I have a little bit more time to like sit down and process everything and do a better job at it. Not like I'm doing right now, Cassidy. <laughs> yeah, um, you're doing fine. But, you're doing great. <laughs> but um, so writing is a big component when you're doing uh, public relations work. I mean, you're writing press releases, you're writing speeches, you're writing announcements, uh, you're writing copy for websites and, and things like that. So I, that's something that I could take over and own really well, even as, a, as an intern. Um, and then it just kind of evolved from there. Like you start connecting with the media and I love one-on-one -on -one interactions and that's often how it happens with press. So um, I felt like I, I was, at least skilled at doing that and I, I was developing good relationships and um sort of from from my internships leading into my first few jobs I kind of like stayed in that path and it was just going well for me and I was growing and I was learning and I was doing better and better and better and I also had some really good mentors at each of these institutions that I worked at the people that hired me ended up being fantastic mentors that um helped me be a better PR professional um and so after we had to transition um and move to hawaii due to john's work i decided to i had i had done some you know freelance work here and there even though i always had a full-time job like people would hire me to um you know make a big splashy announcement about launching a new business or um you know like a youth orchestra would have a a tour to Latin America and they wanted me to help with that announcement, like little things like that. Mm -hmm. But when we moved to Hawaii was when I really started seeing that as a possibility, especially because the first five months that I was in Hawaii, um, I was still working for George Mason University remotely, but um, I didn't have a job lined up there and I still needed some kind of a source of income. So um, there were a couple of organizations in Hawaii that approached me about doing work for them, but they, they didn't have the funds to offer me an actual job and not even a part-time position. So I ended up taking them on as freelance clients. And um, then people from the East Coast started reaching out to me about helping them with specific PR projects. And it sort of like grew from there. Um, and then coming back to um, the mainland, it was really weird, honestly, like as soon as we announced that we were coming back on Facebook, I had like two previous employers contact me and ask me if I was looking for work because they had projects that they wanted me to help with. So I think I've been blessed and pretty lucky in that I've maintained a really strong professional network and I've done a decent job at all of my previous employment, uh, places of employment, uh, so much that 
you know, some of those places have wanted to continue working with me in some capacity over the years. And Mm -hmm. it's really helped me have a strong base um, now that I'm doing my own thing in earnest and, 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 and working as a consultant on my own. Um, it's really been built on those relationships and referrals. The new clients that I have are, most of them are places to whom I was recommended from the Kennedy Center or George Mason or somebody that I've done something with in the past. Yeah, that's awesome. So networking, people, networking. Oh my God, that's so important. Nice tip. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so awesome. And I'm so glad you're, you're having so much success with that. Um, and it sounds like you, you have a lot of clients and that you're doing a really, really great job with that. And you're, you seem to be very much in your element um, and everything that you're doing. And I think that's, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. How has your job changed at all because of COVID? Yes. So I lost my biggest client um, oh. the week of COVID. I call it the week of COVID, but we've known that COVID has been around for a lot longer. So I should say like mid-March. <laughs> yeah, when um, everything shut down. <laughs> exactly. When it hit us all at the same time. Um, but the, a week later, one of my, pre- again, keeping in touch with people, right? Like one of my previous employers called me up to talk about something else. And I told them, yeah, I lost this client. It's a bummer. And then they were like, oh, I'm looking for somebody. Are you interested? And I'm like, yes, let's do it now. And so I've been working with, with that previous employer now since, uh, since mid-March. So um, I, there were a couple of months there were, that were a little bit scary, especially because, as you know, it took organizations a while to figure out how they were going to still present art. Yeah. Like, like if, if your whole model and your whole business is built on people gathering, getting together and having a communal experience of some sort. Um, it was like a shock to the system for everybody. And I think the, I work mostly with institutions, um, which is a little bit better in my opinion, because they, they didn't necessarily all like freak out and start letting people go. Like they actually went through the process of like reviewing budgets and, 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 trying to come up with solutions and seeing who were the people that they could keep on board. And, you know, if if you're a consultant, okay, some places had to let me go, but other places were able to come back or renegotiate a fee or something. Um, But when you're working with artists and touring groups, then that becomes even harder because a lot of these musicians aren't touring and they can't tour. Um, and they haven't been able to figure out another outlet for their art form. So, um, there were, I would say from April through June, it was a little bit scary. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think a lot of the places that I at least worked with were able to figure out, um, everybody's using this word. So I apologize for repeating it, but we're able to figure out how to pivot. Um, and I, it feels I mean, obviously, this is not an ideal situation for everybody, but at least in my little corner of the world, it feels it feels good, and it feels um, I'm not as scared anymore about having work. I, I'm actually like I I'm having to turn away people, which is weird. That's awesome, though. Good for you, especially during this time. I mean, thank geez, you. Never ending. I I just found out today. Um, I was I'm I'm oh phase 1b person in new york state so we're doing our covid vaccines in phases and like 1a we're like the healthcare people and then 1b includes mm-hmm. me because i'm a k-12 teacher and 
I got really excited because they were like, oh yeah, you'll be able to start signing up to your vaccine on Monday. And I was like, so pumped. I was like in there on Monday, like went on the website. I was like, oh yeah, I'm so excited. And then I couldn't sign up. And I was like, what the heck's going on? And then we get an email from our like union rep for our school. And she was like, yeah, so um, they don't have enough vaccines in our county. Oh my um, God. They don't have a facility to hold all of us to get our vaccines yet. And then I was listening to the radio on my way to work this morning and they were like, yeah, it could be up to 14 weeks until everybody in phase one B gets uh, vaccinated. I'm sitting there like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Four months. It might be like the middle of April by the time I get vaccinated. I'm like, it's almost the end of the school year. Like, why am I even bothering at that point that I'm like, I want to get vaccinated now. So germy kids don't get me sick. Right. So I'm sitting there are like oh. having to go in person. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, my, my school is a hybrid school um, right now. That's how they're doing it. So kids come in a couple times a week and they're virtual a couple times a week. And it's a hot mess because you can't do band virtually. It's very, it's very awesome. Oh my God. Well, yeah. I hope you stay safe. I, I would say, I will say like, I feel like John and I have been pretty blessed because we moved to West Virginia um, last year and it was like, what? We moved in November of 2019. That's not last year. That's, that's years ago, but you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And um, it was not like even five months of us being here and COVID hit. But like with me working from home um, and us being specifically in the county where we are now, like the infection rate has obviously gone up. But like when the world was freaking out in March and April and May, mm-hmm. the infection rate was super low here because this is not the kind of place, or at least where we are right now, it's not the kind of place where there's a lot of like, people coming in from other places or like traveling for work or anything like that. So we felt pretty, I mean, we still stayed indoors and we're wearing masks and all of that, but we, we felt like we, we stayed in a, we we felt very safe throughout all of it is what I'm trying to say. The West Virginia is like not populated at all. Um, But in New York, you're freaking out because New York city was just getting pummeled. And then it was like all coming across the state because I'm, live in Rochester, New York right now. So I'm on the other side of the state, but like it, it was just all coming over in like a big wave. We were like, Oh crap, here we go. So we've kind of just been in it for over, over a year now, pretty much. Cause this started, you know, November, December. So it's kind of crazy. Um, it's nuts, honestly, just how much the world has changed because of all of this for sure. I know, but I have to say, I try to think of it in a really positive way. Like we are so adaptive as a species like i i know that we're all suffering one way or another but like so many of the people in my circle have just been able to continue their lives and like we can still shop and we can still like find entertainment on tv and you know you can a lot of us still have work it's just like it's it's pretty amazing that we are able to withstand this because if you like zoom out and you look at what happened to the world it's like oh my god like how are we surviving this yeah I I completely agree with that I also think it has also fostered a lot of creativity in like really weird ways like people are still trying to compose and they're composing for virtual ensembles and then we have these people doing these virtual things together and creating these awesome projects and I think a lot of people are also just really within themselves being very creative. I think it has the, I think this whole time has the opportunity of either 
creating a lot of self-development and self-improvement or a Mm -hmm. lot of like detrimental damage to a person, depending on how you choose to like go about the situation. Like I know a lot of musicians right now are really hunkering down and just practicing really hard and learning all this new rap and like preparing for potential auditions that should hopefully be coming back in the next year or so hopefully and then there are other people that are just like this was like an eye-opening experience of me figuring out that music's just not for me and then they go on to another career I've seen a lot of friends that I went to school with ended up ending up doing that because of all this time in quarantine and things like that it's like people are just figuring out I feel like who they are and what they're passionate about and it's either fostering that creativity or it's kind of drawing people away from it it's very interesting I'm sure there'll be many psychological you know, studies done about us at some point after yeah. all this. <laughs> um, I know. I was telling John the other day, like, I hope I make it and I can't wait until I'm old and I tell our grandchildren, if we ever have any, remember the pandemic of 2020. And I, then I just start going off about everything that happened this year and they just have to sit there and listen. Yeah, I was, I was actually talking to my students about this and I was like this, it was after all the riots happened at the Capitol, I literally had to teach the next day and all of my students just were like, you know, emotionally distressed, A, B, just very confused as to what the hell's going on. And then C, just had so many questions. Right. And Mm -hmm. I, they were asking me like, you know, why did this happen? Like all this stuff. And you know, you sit there as a teacher and you're like, okay, I I don't really want to get political. So I'm not going to go down that route. But I was basically (laughs) just like, the older you get, A, the more you realize how dumb some people are. I was just frank about that because that was a stupid move on their part. But like, we were also talking about how we're living through major moments in history. And like when I was in school growing up, the the closest major moment in history that was in our history books that I had kind of lived through was 9-11. But other than that, yeah. not really, right? And then yeah. all of a sudden, it's like we have this global pandemic and then all this stuff with Black Lives Matter and then all this stuff with storming the damn Capitol, which what the hell was that, right? And like all this stuff just keeps mm-hmm. happening in such a very short spur of time. I told my kids, I'm like, you're going to be old someday and your grandkids are going to have to come to you for school projects. And they're going to have to interview Nana about living through the <laughs> pandemic of 2020. And I'm like, you're going to be the subject of a school project. Wait for it. Yeah. And it's so funny because like when I was growing up, I had to go talk to my grandparents about like the civil rights movement and things like that. And we think of that's like so far in our history and it's really not. Yeah. And so like, we're going to become the subject of that. Like you said, like, we're going to be telling our grandkids about this and then we're going to be talking our, their, our ear off and they're going to sound, you know, we're going to make it sound like it was so long ago to them, but it really wasn't in our, in our memory. So it's, <laughs> exactly. it's kind of interesting how that works out that way. We're living through history. Exactly. So um, my last question for you, it's more of a deep thought kind of, I don't know, hippy dippy sort of question, feel good question. Is there a particular piece of advice or something that someone has given you that you have kind of like carried with you at all, you know, during your time at school and your professional career? Has anyone given you any piece of advice that has stuck with you? Oh, that's a really good one. You know, I always complain. It's funny because I said earlier that I had good professional mentors through all of my jobs, but I always complain that I don't have like a life mentor. You know what I mean? Like there are people that are like, oh, this teacher or this, this aunt or whatever it is, like 
they had such a big impact in my life because they would tell me these things. Mm. Um, I don't know that I've ever received like an actual piece of advice that I've carried with me forever. Like I know I've heard my husband and other people say that. What I will say is that I've definitely had people in my student and professional career who gently nudged me in directions that were really helpful to me and that opened my eyes to new possibilities. Um, and I think one of those people I mentioned earlier in our conversation was Dr. Bordo at the University of Akron. Um, I, I, first of all, I admired him a lot because of, you know, how he was as a, as a teacher um, mm -hmm. and how invested he was in like his students' development and growth. Um, but he was really integral in me making that transition from being obsessed with becoming a performer and not really being happy with what that meant, you know, as we were discussing yeah. before, to finding a path that combined my skills that I didn't awesome. even know were my skills, but somebody else could point to them and say, like, you are good at this thing because I'm your teacher and, you know, I read your your report and I see you interacting with people and I see you speaking in public and these are the things that I notice about you that um, could be useful to you in this other field that is still related to what you love. Yeah, um, and, like, the fact that he sat down with you and, like, talked to you, okay, like, what are you good at? Like, let's identify what your skill set is yeah. and let's find something that can let you be authentically you and be happy and thrive in music. And I think, you know, that may not be, like, a, you know, a quote, right? But that right. is, you know, an inspiration. And he also challenged you to go outside of your comfort zone a little bit and pursue something that, you know, you didn't really have any experience in. And I think that's wonderful that you had a mentor like that in your life that really steered you in the right direction. For sure. Um, I value that moment in my life so much because I, I mean, I love music and, and I still play my oboe. And I was definitely, I was playing a lot when I was in DC, actually, because DC, parenthesis again, is a great place if you want to be an amateur or semi-professional semi musician. There's so many community orchestras that are legit good. Um, mm -hmm. And I, so I just took advantage of that when I lived in DC for almost 10 years. So that was like a really great place for me to be. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm always going to have that and I'm always going to want to play in community orchestras or, or gigs here and there and, 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 and feel like a performer, but I definitely feel more myself in, in the field or of arts administration, specifically public relations and marketing than I ever did. Like, I always felt like a little bit inadequate as a musician. Yeah. Yeah. Like I wasn't, I wasn't good enough. Like I didn't deserve certain things. Like people were clear that I wasn't as talented as, x person mm -hmm. or, or whatever it was and and um i mean you can't go you can't avoid that feeling forever in your life like uh, there are certain points where you're going to feel like that of course but um i don't think that your uh your job and your career path should be a source of so much um like anguish yeah yeah 
but you were, you were able that's to just find <laughs> yourself. No. And that's, and that's good. I think sometimes like people have to get the nudge in the right direction from someone who can seize, like sees them for their potential and like who they are. And I think that's amazing that you had that person in your life and you were able to have that experience. Cause I think, you know, paid off, right. <laughs> I think you're, yeah, you're a lot sure. happier right now. Um, and I think that's sure. amazing. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on and for talking with us today and sharing your experiences. And I, it was wonderful to have you. And, and I love that we're able to just, you know, and on this podcast, explore all different facets of music. Um, not just, you know, musicians and conductors and those things, but um, everybody. Thank you for having me. And I, I mean, I think that you're doing a beautiful job and making these very open conversations um, for, you know, women to, to open themselves and, and share their stories with, with the community. And um, I mean, kudos to you too, because you, you're, you're doing your own thing and, and you're launching this and, and I listened to a few of the interviews and they're fantastic. The first one that I listened to was when you spoke with Jenny Bielfield, who, mm-hmm. uh, by the way, I work with her because um, th- through the agency that I work with, um, Washington Performing Arts is one of our clients. And I, I love Jenny and I admire her so much. Um, and, and, and that conversation was really outstanding. Um, yeah. So thank you for, for creating the space for all of us to come out and be our most authentic selves. Yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing it. You're doing the Thanks. Work. Thank you so much.